joy to watch the spring come forth because prior to that there was a vicious storm snowstorm from the first days i was up there there was snow on the ground and then suddenly melted away and you could see the trees coming to life we are bark roll radio podcast these people are singing at a mass at the catholic worker at saint joseph house in honor of Mark Colville, a member of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. These seven workers for peace had been convicted of trespassing onto the Kings Bay Naval Base in Georgia, which houses U.S. submarines armed with nuclear missiles. Right after this mass, Mark surrendered to the correction officers at a Brooklyn federal prison. This event overlapped the release from federal prison of two other members of the Kings Bay Plowshare 7. Today, we'll be talking with these two Catholic workers. Rebecca and I first met Carmen Trotta and Martha Hennessy when we invited them to the porch of Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on Manhattan in June 2019, a bit over two years ago. At the time, Martha and Carmen and other members of the anti-war plowshares movement were under house arrest for trespassing onto the Kings Bay Naval Submarine Base in Georgia in the previous year. They both were wearing ankle bracelets. Since then, they were found guilty of their crimes. This is a podcast, so imagine me making air quotes around the word crime. And they have spent many months in federal prisons, Martha in Danbury, Connecticut, and Carmen in Otisville, New York. Recently, they were released with some very serious restrictions to require that we speak with them separately. Co-conspirators cannot communicate, and sadly, we're not at a New York City pub. First, a conversation with Carmen Trotta, who has been a member of the New York Catholic Worker for over 30 years. When not incarcerated, he helps the poor and homeless at St. Joseph House in Lower Manhattan. Carmen is also an associate editor of the Catholic Worker newspaper. He is a graduate of Grinnell College, where he played football and studied religion. So first, we want to thank you for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. A joy to be with you guys. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to hear your voice. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm, I'm in pretty good shape. I'm uh, a little concerned about some of my co-defendants because there seems to be an undercurrent in some of the things they say that, uh, that they are not nearly as comfortable as I am. And I don't think any of my co-defendants have been as comfortable as I am sort of throughout because I was in a federal camp. So, what, uh, what, what's, I, what sort of uncomforts do, are they reporting? You know, it's more in their, the, the voices. I mean, Martha, as I understand it, that both Martha and Claire are sleeping on top bunks. They're not young women. Patrick has been, has had a visit to the hospital at one point. They sort of misunderstood what was wrong with him. Thank God he's bright enough to know his situation and uh, to get past it. Uh, I did a lot of uh, reading. There's a journal that comes out from Brooklyn uh, that goes around to most of the prisons uh, for political prisoners. And uh, he wrote, he and Martha wrote extensively for that. And that was um, always very good to hear. Um, but he was talking about, you know, at some points he was talking about some of the difficulties of um, being in the prison. I mean, he doesn't, um, you know, I wasn't hearing very the very upbeat stuff that I would like to hear. And now Mark's going in was a little tumultuous, I understand. I think he's got to go on, on three weeks of basically solitary um, by way of quarantine. 
And we're, so and we're going to talk a bit more about Mark Colville, who is an, um, one of the seven um, Kings Bay Plowshare seven uh, a, a bit later. And he just he just went in to a Brooklyn federal prison. That was, the, that was the one prison that I did not want to go to. That was the prison closest to my home. Um, and I uh, clearly steered away from it uh, when I asked to go to Otisville. I did not think that I was going to get into the camp at Otisville. I didn't ask for it. But in any case, that, uh, that place in Brooklyn is poorly run and has been for years. So, so you were at Otisville Federal Prison, where you were incarcerated for six months, right? Well, there were a lot of guys who were blue-collar, uh, white-collar criminals there. They were all into the law. They were uh, very excited that it might be the case that they were going to get released. I did not think that. I thought that was impossible for that to happen to me, in part because I refused to pay restitution. So I was not particularly ready uh, to leave so quickly. Uh, and then someone the day before the, our actual release, or someone told me that you're on the list, you're on the list. So I was able to, I got out uh, much earlier than I imagined I was going to go out, come out. Why, um, why were you on the list to, to come out? Do you have any idea why? Yeah, do you why? know why you were released? Well, I had done more than 50% of my, I was a certain age and I had done more than 50% of my time. Um, and that seems to be the magical formula. I thought that would be withheld from me because I was, because I refused to pay restitution. Why didn't the authorities allow you to return to your home and work at uh, St. Joseph Catholic Worker House? Well, so I guess I'm in the, uh, under the control now of a halfway house that wants to sort of reintegrate me into society. It's almost as though I've been in prison for 10 or 15 years. Uh, and they want to have me, they want to help me create a resume uh, they want me to go around to get a job at $15 per hour. They will take 25% of whatever pay I would get if that's the way it were to go. I was very somewhat impressed by the, the people who were working at the halfway house up in uh, the Bronx. They were all very pleasant and helpful. And then I met my counselor, and she's a doll. And uh, I had a, she's a very upbeat person. Initially, they said I couldn't go back to the Catholic worker because they had someone investigate it, and it was too heavily traf trafficked during the time of COVID. So it's, uh, you can sort of understand the argument. And then Mary House, St. Joseph House and Mary House were treated in the same way. So all right, so I go into uh, 21 days of lockdown. On the 22nd day, we're supposed to leave. And I thought I was leaving then. And then I found out that they couldn't validate the Catholic worker. So we had to scramble in terms of thinking, well, where else can I go? If we didn't get that done quickly, they would have sent me back to the camp, in which case, when, I, when they would try to release me the next time, I would have to go through another 21 days of solitary. So I didn't want to do that. And I pled with them to leave me and we would get something done in the next couple of days. And then my lawyer, a dear friend, fellow Catholic workers, Matt and Amanda Deloisio, said that they would put me up in their new apartment. So I live in an astoundingly beautiful apartment. Wow. <laughs> and the, Where is the apartment? Uh, just on the, just uh, very near to Tompkins Square Park uh, here in Manhattan, uh -huh. uh, about, about seven blocks north and uh, or five avenues wide uh, from the Catholic worker. I could easily walk to the Catholic worker. Let's talk a little bit about the retribution part because you've mentioned it already. If you were to be paid $15 an hour for going back to work, 25% would go to the um, to the halfway house, which is a private agency utilized by the BOP. And then other parts of that money would go uh, 
to other places. And I think I would only get, if I read the papers correctly, and I may not have, I think I would only get 25% of my own pay. But I'm... You're not looking well, for a job because you already have a job. I have a vocation at the Catholic Worker. I've lived at the Catholic Worker for the last 34 years. I'm very integrated into the community on the Lower East Side. Um, there's uh, plenty of chores that uh, I could do and that the community is uh, missing because they're chores that I would normally do. And uh, so my supervisor, when we put together a schedule for me, we put together a schedule that included going to the Catholic Worker a lot. And she gave me a lot of, yeah, I told her she's a nice woman. She gave me a, a number of things, but she said this was not for her to decide. And so now there are two other people that we are in contact with, and they are asking me now to sort of justify my life and tell me that this is my work at the Catholic Worker. And I have to tell you, know, I, don't, I haven't had a bank account in 35 years, and I've you know lived at the Catholic Worker all this time. I'm 59. I'm not dependent on any medications. It's been a fairly decent life and a very meaningful life living at the Catholic Worker. Yeah, I have some optimism that they, they might actually hear this and allow me to go back. Okay. Um, okay. Okay, well, good luck with that. I uh, would love to see you there at the Catholic Worker. I've been meaning to volunteer. I haven't done it yet. I have to, I have to get over there and help you with no handing, handing out the lunches. No, huh? what, no beer. No beer. beer at the Catholic Worker. No, I'll, yeah, I'll, we know. We I'll know. beer before. I'll drink before. <laughs> uh, there are people throughout the world who respect the work that you do for the poor to raise awareness about the dire threat of nuclear holocaust. Uh, we and they are concerned with your well-being, and that's why we're having uh, this program to talk with you, and want to learn about your sojourn through the New York State federal prison system. So one more time, I want to thank you again for joining us, uh, Carmen. Could you tell us about the Otisville Federal Prison? Um, you said it wasn't as bad as some. I've been there. Um, it's on the side of a mountain in a most beautiful spot in upper state New York. Can you describe where you were? I was at a camp. There was a larger prison right next door that okay. is uh, re completely related. But the um, camp is for white-collar criminals primarily. So um, was Michael uh, Cohen there? Was that where he was? Michael Cohen was there. And, okay. um, so they call yeah. it a camp, but I would assume it's not really a camp. Well, here's what it is. The, the, I mean, the great difference is when I go outside, you can go outside of the prison facility every day hmm. um, at any time. Even in the evening, you can do it. You could walk around the grounds. There is no fencing. There is no concertina wire. And people did that every day, took, a long, took, took walks um, around the... You know, the border was de defined really by a forest, a beautiful forest. Every day out of that forest came scads of deer. Um, there were uh, Canadian geese. Uh, a couple of people saw a fox. I never saw that one. And then when the season was right, the turkeys become coming out of the... I mean, it was really quite beautiful in that way. It's a very different thing than being held inside all the time or being able to go out <clears throat> only in very limited, for very, in a very limited time frame. So... It's also the case that um, I would imagine the demographics of uh, who was inside, Orthodox Jewish community was uh, the largest part of, uh, largest subset. Black folks had, were less than, I'd say, 15% of the prisoners that were in the camp. A lot of them were very bright guys, and um, there was never, there was no sense there whatsoever. There was not a fight while I was there. The food was good. The showers were hot. 
and people really did get along. In fact, this wristwatch that I have in my hand right now was given to me by one of the prisoners the first day there. The sneakers that I'm walking around with was given, were given to me um, by another prisoner who was there. So when guys leave the prison, they leave certain things behind that they won't need anymore, and they give them to friends who will then pass them on to new inmates. So there's a, there are friendships that really develop. So there are like seven people now that are that are from New York and Queens, New York City, Manhattan and Queens, um, who I know and who I'm going to be in touch with, particularly when we uh, finish our sentences and I'm, I'm really out. I got a guy who, you know, is, he's got a, a restaurant up in um, Harlem. Looks like he shows me pictures of it. Looks like a nice place. And I know that I'm going dining there uh, before very long once I get, uh, once I'm, out of this sort of this form of control. That's so. that, that's amazing. That's a whole different view than I had of what what's going on up there. You said Orthodox <clears throat> Jews. There's a, a community of Orthodox Jews at there, or they are the prisoners. I didn't quite get that. They are the prisoners, and they form a community and uh, very good folks. Uh, they did a lot of religious services. Why were and, they there? Uh, like I said, they're all they're all uh, white collar crimes. They're all white collar crimes. They're all. Okay. I mean, I, I got to trust certain people and I thought they were telling me that they were they were resentful because they were the fall guy uh, in something. I don't know if that's true or not, right. but in the case of certain people, I did believe them. I thought they were credible. And like I say, they're, they're very bright people, particularly that some of them are younger and I think they get outflanked by people at the corporations that they work for and they, got, and they have to take, they end up taking a hit. Were there any other political prisoners? Yes. There were, and there's one, I, I would pray for him and it's Selly, they call them. He was there for bribery charges. He's from the, he's from New York State, up in Albany. Sheldon Silver. Sheldon Silver. I didn't. I had no idea who he was. Now he is a he is an eighty-something, if not ninety-year-old man who can uh, not get out of a chair easily by himself. I I had the job of cleaning the bathrooms and I put chains up on you know so no one comes into the bathroom. I yell out that I'm going to start cleaning the bathroom. People clean up quickly and get out. When I got to a certain of the four toilets to open the door, I realized someone's feet were there and I popped the door open and it's him and I have to help him up. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we became good friends. We became sort of good friends after this. And he gave me a book about the Holocaust. It's a book written by the, um, the chief uh, rabbi in Jerusalem. And it was a good book at the, I, I didn't want to get into an argument with him over Israel Palestine, and then it got to, and then finally I find out who he was. What happened to him ultimately is he got, he was released before I was, and he didn't expect it. And then, I guess the the prosecution, the prosecutors at his trial, went after him again, and they put they brought him back, Jeez. they put him back in jail, which I, I'm sorry he's. 89, did you say? Old and frail, and there's nothing he could possibly have done that would that would justify putting him in jail, from my perspective. He was a he seemed like a pretty decent fellow to me. I understand he took a bribe, there may be more to it than that, but he was too old to keep in a prison in that manner. There would, I don't see any reason for it. Sheldon Silver is a very famous uh, democratic politician. Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and so you you were there with him. I was there with him, yes. and I, I, I remember when the news came out that he was going back. I, and and so yeah. you. And that, and that, it was heart. That is really heartbreaking. It's got to be heartbreaking for him. 
I mean, no, it's a, it's a very, it's a terrible thing to get to, to get out. I had another friend, a guy from New York, who was supposed to get out with me at the same time. And in the, the, the final day, they disqualified him. And he was, I mean, I would have done the same thing. He was heartbroken. Well, it's not natural for people to be held in jails, you know. Right. And, yes. But this uh, Sheldon Silver was not um, a political prisoner. You were a prisoner of conscience, a prisoner of because of the activists. You had done no crime. Sheldon Silver did do a crime, um, according to the six, courts. He's Eighty years old. He's eighty plus years no, old. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm all with you there. Um, I, I think I think the question that as a political prisoner, should you have been in a prison where people actually committed crimes? Yeah, well, I think, you know, in the history of the uh, plowshares, uh, people like Phil Berrigan thought it was the right thing to be in the mix of the general population, whoever they were, and that we should not be privileged. I didn't ask for privilege, but I, it was given to me. I was very surprised that they were going to put me in the camp. And it seemed like everyone was greatly relieved on the staff when I first came in and told me, you know, you're going to be all right. They told other people told me that in the other facility there were gangs and the like, and I didn't experience any of that. And so I really feel like I've I've been just individually and and by happenstance I was given a a, a much lighter term uh, than my friends during my time in prison. We were given uh, an award by DePaul University. Right. For the for what we had done. So I'm in jail explaining to the various prisoners around me and my counselor that I've gotten a jail. I've gotten an award for being here. <laughs> you wow. Know? That's, and then that's a dichotomy. A guy, what a weird, weird, weird thing. Weird place. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's and actually, bizarre. They were, they, they were all. I, yeah, they were all very. Um, they were very taken by it. One of them, the guy Queens, who I met, who I'm going to meet again, and as soon as he heard what I did, he was said, "You don't belong here at all. Everything, everybody else is here because of money. Everybody did some your money. You didn't get any money. You didn't even try to get money." Did you feel you were in the right place? Do you, do you feel that that the, the justice system is such that a person of conscience like yourself and and and, and the others of your cohort? That the that prison. I mean, is that how you feel? Do you feel along with Philip Berrigan that you should be there for what you did? I would like to live up to the legacy of Philip Berrigan on the one hand. Um, on the other, I'm I'm not sure. So it's the first time I really served uh, that sort of length of time, and I'm not sure that being incarcerated helps anyone. I'm not sure that there's any any real function um, played by uh, the prison system as it is. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't asked about the corrections officers. Right? How did they treat you? The a great variance among them. Let me say this: the most one of the more one of the more striking things uh, that I encountered in the camp um, and everywhere there, but in the camp was that there are a whole bunch of guards who wore the blue Lives Matter flag on their uniform, which I would, I, I, you know, it's incredibly reactionary. Um, and I would think it would be illegal. If you were a black prisoner, black or brown prisoner, that would be certainly frightening. It could be traumatizing, frankly. And that was, you pretty regularly saw it on different guards. And every, in any prison, even in the camp, they do things to trip you up. So one day I, I got, um, I didn't have, I have hearing aids. I didn't have my hearing aids and I was in a separate building. I was in the library I was studying. And I did not hear uh, that there was a count being called for. I didn't wasn't thinking what time it was or anything. And I got there 
late. I could have been put in the shoe for two, two or three weeks. They threatened me with it. Oh, one of the guys who was very well liked there, one of the inmates who did a lot of work there and was very well liked there, said, went to them and basically said, listen, he's a good guy. And so they wouldn't quite allow me to get away entirely free. They told me to take a, they gave me a plastic bag and they told me it was, and there was still some snow on the ground. They told me to go fill the bag with leaves to go rake and fill the bag with leaves. The fact that they had to do something to to punish yeah. me, yeah. that let me know I had done something wrong. So they, there are constantly things that they do to trip you up. The, when I first got there, I was told by my case manager that uh, well, we would see each other in three months. I thought, wow, three months, I'm not gonna see you, I'm meeting you now, you're my case, you're my advisor, and you're, I'm not gonna see you for three months. So, but I was there, I kept it on my calendar, I made sure I was there, didn't wanna miss it. Not only was I there, but there were like nine other prisoners there who had come on the same day, and she doesn't show. The next time you see her, does she say, do you think she apologizes? No. 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 It's just that you just get, they, they do things to humiliate you. They do things to trip you up. Every week um, at the camp, there would be, the guys used to call them the feds. They were a different set of guards. And they would come, and, and everyone, including the, including the the staff at the camp, was sort of afraid of that. And everything's a stand-up count. You have to you have to a, a couple of times a day. But when they walk by, you have to be standing up, and you have to be looking at them. Wow. And if you're not, again, they could could make life difficult. Yeah. Um, on that on that day, when those when that particular group came by, um, everyone uh, would clear the tables and the, 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 I'm not sure what to call them. It's where they put you, where you would put your clothes, but it was a steel box really, um, cabinet. That's what it was, a steel cabinet. And you always had things on top of that. On the, everyone woke up early before they came and cleared that. Because if they saw a thing on there, they would, they would violate you. Or they would go into the cabinet and see if you had anything that you're not supposed to have. So at one point, I had like, 15 books in my cabinet. And if they'd have done that to me, they could have took, they could have took uh, more than half of my books because wow. you're only supposed to have five books at a time. Can I just go back though to something you said? So I just want our listeners to understand what is a, what you said they, they would put you in a shoe. It's the worst place you can be. It's isolation. I do. It is not what it was um, in the 1970s, um, but it is, it's a pretty harsh way of being treated. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, what did you miss most when you were there? <laughs> I missed my family and I missed the life of the Catholic worker. Um, you know, my just a few months prior to my uh, my um, going in, my my father had passed away. Um, so my it's interesting how it kind of shifts the family around. And, um, so it's more, I'm, yeah, I know when we said, when Chris, when, when New Year's Eve was celebrated, that was a very hard, very, very hard night because the last, the time before on New Year's Eve, my father, the whole family was there and my father collapsed on a chair and was crying. And I knew he was doing that because he knew it was the last New Year's. So. That was a hard day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. But he was great, and uh, 
I, I now I, I can I can draw up a whole slew of memories of him uh, that make me uh, that uh, make me cry tears of joy. Wow. Did you participate? Were you able to participate in religious services? Yeah, there was a deacon there, a very good guy. I want to send him some books on the Berrigans. I promised him I would do that, and I haven't done it yet. Um, he was interested in that. Yeah, he was a very good guy. Did, did a lot of people a lot of favors. He, at one point, in another instance, he, he spoke up for me when I might have gotten into a little trouble. You've been in jails before. Did you learn something about the penal system um, or yourself that you were not aware of? Or did this experience surprise you in any way? Blue Lives Matter thing, that, that was a surprise. Um, otherwise, I mean, the surprise was, in, in my case, on the one hand, how well people got along. On the other hand, how desperately everyone wants to get out. And my sense is overwhelming, as I said at some point, that, they, that I'm not sure that prisons serve any function. Like to humiliate people does not lead to a, a better person. To, to force them to abide by rules by yelling at them. I mean, I got an ankle monitor on me right now, and the ankle monitor yells at me. If I do something, if I'm, um, so the other day I was in the shower. Um, I took a shower, I took a shave. In the meantime, they randomly call you during the day. You're supposed to pick up the phone and say your identification number, you know? And so I didn't do it because I was in the shower. I didn't have my, I didn't hear the phone. Um, I showered and shaved. And then, um, my ankle monitor yells at me and says, uh, "Report to supervisor now!" Oh my God! Report wow. to supervisor now! Wow! And I'm a 58-year-old man, and you think I'm going to be intimidated by a virtual voice coming out of my ankle? This is childish. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, so all of a sudden, I called them, and uh, they said, "You know, this child, we called you. Know, we called you a couple times, 20 minutes ago." And I said, yeah, I said, well, yeah, I'm sorry. You know, I was in the shower. I didn't, I didn't actually even have my uh, hearing aids in. And then I took a shave. And he said, yeah, but Ms. Trotter, it was 20 minutes. Oh, I yeah, said, yeah, that's how long it takes. Shave, and I took a shave. <laughs> that's how long it and takes to shower. They, they did come, they did come, the, the person did come to senses and sort of let it go. Um, but, I mean, but the, the, this ankle monitor and the fact that it's yelling at yelling at me is like symbolic of, of what the Bureau of Prisons is doing. And it doesn't, it, I'm, I'm not sure it's good for anyone. Yeah. Right? It's about humiliating you. Yes, it is. It, and and, and, and I'm, I should be the last person to speak of it, you know, because I'm, I'm in a camp and things are better there than they are in almost any other place. Yeah. And yet it, it still happens. It's still, it's still a constant. Yeah. Uh, Mark Colville, we'd mentioned him earlier as, has just entered. A prison, which you are indicating is a lot worse than 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 where you are. Do you? Uh, we're we're going to hear a statement that he made right before he went in. But could you want to say anything to him if he could get this podcast? A couple of years, I have no idea. But a couple of years ago, that prison uh, they lost all in the winter time. They lost their heat, and the prisoners simply had to deal with it for quite a long time. Wow. Um, so as I said, the place is not very well run. Mark is going to survive because Mark is a survivor. He's a very strong guy. He's probably going to lead other people to their own survival because he is really such a good, um, yeah, he's a good Christian. He could, he could have been, he's a good scripture reader. He's very, uh, I mean, he lives in it. He, he, he lives in a very, uh, an extremely poor neighborhood. 
that Catholic work for self. And, yeah. I'm going to be talking to Martha and Carmen next week. Good. And they're they're just getting out, and yes. you're just going in. How do you feel right now? I feel, and as I as I sent out a message this morning, I think what we're doing here is we're um, we're expanding this circle of community uh, into a place beyond locked doors. You know, the locked doors represent the fear. You know, the fear that uh, uh, divides us and separates us. And our whole thing about, and it's not about me, it's about this community. Our whole purpose in community is, is you know, that um, love casts out fear. And, um, and this is that, I think the, what this is, is that in practice, okay? Because nobody does these things by themselves. Um, and certainly I wouldn't even contemplate, uh, you know, doing this kind of thing without, the, um, without being deeply connected to it community of faith so uh, that's what that's what we're about and again it's not the day is not about me it's about uh, it's about who we are as a community and that's why uh, to me this was the important place to be today um, and do you feel you're bringing the community in with you when you go behind those locked yeah doors? I, th- I that's how I look at it I, I look at it that our community now our circle is now uh, it's violated those uh, those locked doors you know that uh, and that's a, to me that's a beautiful image to uh, to carry in there, um, uh, because I'm also conscious that most, if not all, of the people that uh, that I'll be living with are people that uh, that don't have that. They don't ha- necessarily have that that um, sense of hope. And um, one of I think one of the gifts that uh, that we bring in when we go on, under these circumstances is that we don't accept. You know the package that is delivered to people on the other side in the in the prisons, which is a package of guilt, you know, and uh, and, and uh, that somehow they're of less value than anybody else, and that you know it's basically like I mean the reality for most people is that they wear on their forehead, you know, in in many cases maybe the worst thing they've ever done, you know. I, I like to appeal to people to think about that, think of the worst thing that you ever did in your life. Right, and then think about it, if it was tattooed on your head, and every time somebody saw you, um, that's what they saw first. That's that's the reality of the prisoner. Okay, and so the, to the extent that we can uh, participate in that reality, we, we take a step towards solidarity and see in the world the way Jesus uh, saw the world when he was walking around. You know, from the bottom up, um, and that's the you know we need we need the people on the other side of that wall uh, in order to see the world the way the way Jesus wants us to. You've done nothing wrong, though. There's nothing on your forehead that says you've done anything wrong. Well, I can... I am just as guilty as everybody else in terms of uh, my complicity in the social sin and all. But I will not allow myself to be defined by that. That's what resistance is about, okay? We, we don't get defined by that. We get defined by, um, by who we choose to be in the world and by cultivating the kind of hope that a place like this and a gathering like this uh, brings, you know. So we used to, when we were at Camden County together, we used to get up early, really early in the morning uh, when no one else was up, and we would do the readings of the day. And, and then and he would comment on them, particularly there was one area where it was all John's gospel, and John's gospel is dense and hard to get through. And uh, by the end of our time there, which was only one month, there were five other prisoners, three to five other prisoners, um, who would come out every day, um, to listen to that conversation that we had and then to participate in that conversation. And mainly they came to hear what he had to say. There was one point during 
uh, during which he refused to stand for a guard. Mark did. And they were going to put Mark in the hole for that. And all of the prisoners um, sort of pled uh, with the uh, guard uh, not to do it. And, and, they, the, the, and the guard actually backed down wow. because there were so many, so many prisoners so in favor of, of Mark's presence. Where is the Plowshares movement now? I mean, I think there was, a, I think, a three-year period between uh, the last set of the last Plowshares action. And things have, you know, there's a bit of a transformation now. I mean, the, uh, the Bishop of Rome, the, uh, Pope Francis, said that the very possession of nuclear weapons is to be firmly condemned. The you know, Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is international law. We do know that there's uh, quite a bit of uh, nuclear proliferation going on, on the one hand. International tensions are extraordinarily high, so it, w- it was an interest. Our, our the timing of our action, not that we were in charge of it, it was just sort of, is in my mind very interesting. Yeah. It does seem to be that we we did kick off a renewed sense of the nuclear weapons being extraordinarily hazardous, and I would like to think that there'll be a larger movement that grows out of it. That's not necessarily a plowshares movement, but demonstrations in the street, um, or um, you know, some sense that this needs to be, there's so much healing that needs to be going on right now. The, the nuclear weapons are, are, are one uh, threat to the planet. Uh, global warming is another. The pandemic is another. It's a very strange uh, world that we are handing over um, to the next generation. And with so, that, we're going to have to end. Great talking with you, Carmen, again. And we, we look forward to seeing you physically. In person. In person at St. Joseph's and maybe after we give out some lunch we'll take you out to to a beer or something. (laughs) Very good. I look forward to it. This is great. Thank you. Martha Hennessy is the seventh child of Dorothy Day's only child, Tamar. She's a retired occupational therapist and a grandmother of eight. Prior to being incarcerated for peacefully protesting nuclear submarines at the Kings Bay Naval Base, Martha had divided her time between her family farm in Vermont and volunteer work at Mary House Catholic Worker in New York City. She has been imprisoned for protesting nuclear power, war, the use of drones, the torture of prisoners in Guantanamo and other prisons, and the use of starvation as a weapon of war in Yemen. Martha. Hello. Hi. Hello. Hi. So we were just talking with Carmen. Now we're talking with Martha Hennessy and just really wonderful to have the opportunity to talk with you again. So we did we did just speak with Carmen Trotta, who is a co-conspirator in the Plowshares protest against nuclear arms at the Kings Bay Naval Base. Uh, recently you and Carmen were just released from federal prison and we sense that people all over the world who know your work and are concerned about your well-being want to learn about your recent incarceration. Uh, you were recently released from a uh, prison where you were incarcerated for about six months. Um, where are you uh, now? Five. Five months? Um, yeah, I'm still in BOP custody. I'm at a halfway house in Manchester, New Hampshire, called Hampshire House, and I've been here over three weeks Um when I came here on May 26th from Danbury, and uh, my husband drove me here, and we were expecting to just stop in and check in and then be on our way back to Vermont for mm. home confinement. 
but they took one look at me and they said, where's your suitcase? We're putting in you quarantine for 10 days. That's amazing. So they, they didn't let you know what was going on? Like what the process nope. or procedure yeah. was? It just surprised might have you said, with it. Bring your... Well, that... luckily my husband had brought some items because it just was not clear what was going on. Oh. And back at, in Danbury, they said, oh, the halfway houses are not keeping people. Well, it's not true. I, they're trying to keep me until um, probably uh, July 27th, and I'm doing my best to um, fight that. Uh, I should have gone to home confinement, and apparently uh, the BOP has uh, labeled me a violent recidivist, and otherwise I meet all of the criteria for home confinement. And so How do you think the that happened? Goes on. How do you think that happened, that they labeled you this way? You're not a violent person. Well, you know, we get these prizes for doing peace work, and then we get labeled. It's, you know, it's a schizophrenic culture. Right. Um, the BOP, you know, their aim is to punish, and also the whole purpose of this place is to make money. It's, it's another form of trafficking. Um, this house is bringing in $100,000 a month keeping people here. Oh. Could you tell us what the house is like, the New Hampshire house is like? And what are the limitations in, in your freedom? Uh, so it's on Elm Street, in, uh, uh, which is a main street of Manchester, a nice small city. Um, I was arrested here in 1979 protesting Seabrook Nuclear Power Plant. The house is a 1920s. It's been brick house and converted into uh, a halfway house. It's three floors, uh, men on the top floor, women on the second floor, a dining hall and lounge on the first floor and offices on all three floors and there's probably about a half a dozen um, staff members who work behind the desk and then another half dozen who are case managers directors and things like that and I have to uh, I'm on a five o'clock curfew but I cannot go out of the house um, I, the first 10 days I was in one room without any um, break any exercise outside and now my situation is such that I have to um, fill out these itineraries three days in advance um, and so I am able to do an hour walk in the morning it's designated location and I have to call halfway through the walk and then when I come back I'm searched um, they do a the breathalyzer once a week they're testing my urine. I've already told them that I have no history of addiction and they're still doing all that testing. Mm. And I, ha I cannot have any food in my room. Someone sent me some food and it was thrown out. Wow. Um, what was sent? I what did they the send you? What kind of food? Or granola and pumpkin seeds and honey. Wow. Kathy Breen did from Mary House, Catholic Workers Lounge. Why do you think? Why do you think they treat you like this? This doesn't make any sense. It's not certainly not humane. No, it's all punitive. It's puritanical. It's you know I call it a fascist franchise. You know, the women here are not getting treatment for their drug addiction. Um, there's no rehab to speak of. The men all have to work. Um, they're supposed to save twenty five percent of their earnings and give 25% to this house for rent. Um, I think that that is on hold during COVID. Um, 
And, you know, I've worked for 30 years and retired occupational therapist. And I said, I, I, I'm retired. I don't work for wages anymore. Um, but I'm doing volunteer work um, at a food pantry here because if you don't do volunteer work or wage work, um, you cannot advance to the next phase, which gets you closer to home confinement. Wow. But, you know, the BOP has already given me a date of, um, uh, this is called a residential reentry uh, center. But you don't know why and they did it. You don't, you don't know why they, they put you in the halfway house instead of letting you go to home confinement. To make money off mm. of my body. Okay. Yeah. okay. But they're not making go. any money off of you. Why not? They're making money. The, so this is a private contractor yeah. with right. the BOP. Yeah, everybody, everybody is generating income to the program here just by being here. Could you tell us who who are who the who are the people that are there? You started saying that many of them have uh, have problems with drugs, um, and, and who are the guards? So they're not guards. They're um, the whole top echelon of administrators are all white. I think about half and half, men and women. The people who work behind the desk are young. I think um, two or three of them are of color. They're not guards. They're, um, you know, they make it all look, you know, very uh, different than a prison. But it's very much the same situation that I was in in Danbury. And I do have to ask myself why I didn't just simply stay there until july 27th and then gone directly home it's just that i didn't understand Mm. um what was happening you you have to operate with very little information all the time when you're walking around uh uh, manchester uh for that was it hour or whatever that you're allowed to take a walk and then come back do you do you run into anybody do you get to talk to people do they know who you are and where you're living right now um, I do have a little support group here, um, a, a nun, a Sister of Mercy, and a Veterans for Peace uh, group of people, and they asked me to go to breakfast with them, and I was denied that. And, oh. you know, maybe if they're sitting at a cafe, maybe I can stop and introduce myself, but no, I'm not supposed to talk to anybody, and I'm not supposed to talk to media. So you're not supposed to talk to us. That's right. I'm taking a risk. Should we not post this for a while? No, go ahead. I don't, you know, whatever. Well, I think the word has to go out. Right. So you've been jailed many times. Can you tell us about the Danbury FCI, the Federal Corrections Institution? Um, Yeah, I have not been to. I've not been to jail many times. Um, I was three months um, in 1980 here in the Manchester area for protesting Seabrook. Um, I spent a week um, in Onondaga Justice Center in Syracuse, New York. And then I spent uh, two months down in Georgia County Jail right after the action. And I just spent five months in Danbury. Okay. After, right. hearing, after hearing the women's stories, you know, these little stints here and there are nothing compared to mm. what other people have done. Yeah, at here and at Danbury, you know, most people do at least a year. Yeah. So tell us about Danbury. Uh, um, what you said that was you, you should have stayed there. You feel now, uh, but what, and, what, what and, was and that? There were some photos that looked like there you were situated um, in the woods outside the town. Can you describe the place? Yeah, Danbury. I think it opened up in the 1930s, and it's been added on over the years. 
It's a beautiful setting, the hideous buildings. I was held in the low-security women's camp. No locked doors. Um, We were in dorms. Um, I I didn't have a cubicle mate because of COVID. So everyone, you know, did have their own cubicle. It was about 40 women. It's usually at 200, but Danbury was slapped with a lawsuit because people died of COVID there and they were not responding to the pandemic properly. And so by the time I got there, there were um, many fewer uh, women inmates, um, but there was, you know, another um, wave of people getting sick there in November and December. When you were and there? Right before I got right there. Right before, okay. So I've, I've just been, I've been very fortunate um, not running into, there was one woman who was just diagnosed with it who walked through the hallway where the, the first cell that I was held in. Um, I was held in quarantine for 23 days. I didn't have toilet paper for the first three days. I didn't have a hair comb oh, for oh two gosh. weeks. Um, I had no access to the phone or to stamps or to envelopes the first two weeks. Um, you know, you say this so easily. So, I mean, you said you were in confinement for 23 days? Yes, the first nine days were in a cell that did not have a toilet, and I had to bang on the um, mesh to use the toilet. Um, and then we were moved to uh, the education center, which had been turned into a quarantine quarters and then i spent the next um 18 or so days there and Uh, then was moved up to the camp when i was moved from the cell to the education center i was shackled and it was january and i had on a t-shirt and shoes with no socks when i was transported this is inhumane every inch of the way is designed to torture and punish the texture of the blankets, the flavor of the toothpaste, the food is dreadful. Um, people don't look at you. People don't say hi. Um, but, you know, women form community no matter what, anyhow. And, you know, there's this terrible struggle with the smokers trying to hide their smoking. And here I have to use the to- there's one toilet for all of us women. And they smoke in the bathroom. So I'm breathing cigarette smoke, and I can't say anything to the staff about it because then I would have the women on my back. You talk so about a, these stories can go on and on. You talk about a community of women prisoners, uh, you being one of them. Who were these women, and did you have any, um, you did, did you get to know any of them in, in particular? Yes, of course. Um, there's one woman, Dana Danbury, from Vermont who. I happened to be right in the cubicle next to me. Um, so, you know, I think probably the biggest issue for the women is um, addiction, poverty, violence, addiction. And the BOP is operating on an $84 billion annual budget. And this money is just um, being used to torture people and to make money for others. And it's completely unnecessary. And it's not, this is not what the women need. They need to be home with their families. Can you tell us about an individual and, that you met um, that, that you um, got to know while in prison? Yeah. Yeah. I, there, there were, I had several friends there. They're very nice. Um, and some of the issues that they're in for is uh, gambling. Gambling addiction is, happens to be very big. Okay. 
Wow. I'm, I'm getting a feeling you don't want to talk about them in particular in order to keep them safe and yourself safe. Is that right? Yeah, I can't say too much about I got it. other people's lives. We asked the same question to Carmen. Clearly, um, you and he are not criminals. You did not commit a criminal act. You committed an act of conscience, a moral act of conscience. Did the other, uh, the other women there see you differently? Yes. Um, their immediate reactions were, why are you here? That's crazy. Um, but, you know, they, I couldn't really share with them the aspects of nuclear abolition. I mean, they got it. They understood it, but their lives were just so, they were just on survival mode. They could not focus on, you know, the details of uh, any of this. Every day is a struggle for them to just get the basics of what they need, but they're completely aware. The women of color are completely aware of, you know, the injustice of the system. Yeah. And what about the correctional officers? Who are they? How do they treat you? Are they women, the correctional officers? Uh, no, they're men and women, black and white, at the camp. Um, you know, some of them were easygoing and reasonable, and others were sadists. Um, it just depends on their own dispositions and personalities. And, um, you know, I, I, it, it's such a funny thing to describe. You know, when you have set up a system that's designed to punish it does very strange things to people on both sides, prisoners and staff. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we had case managers and unit managers. And, you know, there was reverse discrimination. There, there were people of color in positions where they did try to protect um, other people of color, and they were pissed off at white people. Um, but, you know, for the most part, it's the totally racist um, the women who were of color who were in, you know, they they were facing like eight years when, when other women with similar issues who were white would, would get like two years. Mm. So, I mean, the system is very discriminating. So these prisons, they have strict policies. They um, uh, may be formal and informal. Um, which policies did you find the most difficult at Danbury FCI? Getting information, communication, and getting information. Everything was convoluted and distorted purposefully or just out of confusion as well. How did you stay healthy during the, uh, the pandemic in prison? Um, it was just very fortunate that um, no cases of COVID came in while I was there. Um, I wore a mask all the time. I washed my hands a million times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not, you know go into other people's cubicles. Um, I would stay in my own dorm. There were three dorms. I bet your family um, was I very, would, very worried about that. that of aspect. course, yeah. of course. Yeah. And, you know, I tried to get out in February under the CARES Act, you know, being elderly and having served a certain amount of time. But I had an outstanding case um, regarding the drone actions that we do in Syracuse, New York, and it took two months to just do some very simple paperwork. And it, that, that kept me there. And then we were offered um, the COVID shots in February. I did decline for multiple reasons. And that put me out of the lawsuit, but into another category. Um, so it, people just sit and wait and wait and wait. Um, 
So my routine was one of um, daily exercise, prayer, reading, writing. I, I kept a daily journal. I'm still keeping it now. Some of that was published on the website. Yes, and um, I've read it. I, been, I, I would like to get to some of what you wrote uh, just in a, in a yes. few minutes. You know. Oh. Yeah. What did you miss most while you were incarcerated? Um, decent food and, you know, most of the people in prison, both staff and prisoners, are da- damaged, damaged people, vulnerable people. Um, so, you know, I miss, I miss conversation. I miss my family. I miss the outdoors. Um, yeah. I miss not being able to hear Amy Goodman's news hour. <laughs> so you're still in that situation, though, I think, right? Were you in the halfway house? I mean, is it how is yeah. it? Mm. Yeah. At Danbury, I could go out. I could walk outside anytime I liked and then walk on the track um, for an hour a day. So I, I had much more outdoor time there. And, it's you know, it's a setting that has wild animals. I saw a bobcat. Whoa. Um, lots of birds returning in the spring. Um, you know, it was just more geared up for holding people. Here, it's just keeping you in the house until you go to work. Mm. Oh, God, it just sounds, oh, God. I hope we want you to get out of there as quickly as possible, yeah. Martha. Well, I want to ask were you able Thank to participate you. in religious services at Danbury? Yes, not until February. The priests finally came back in February, and we had weekly Sunday Mass, and that was beautiful. We had three different priests. And it was, it meant a lot to me, made a huge difference. But I also did the daily rosary and put together a small group, mostly Hispanic women were practicing Catholic. There's a huge population of um, former Catholics. And also we did the morning readings. I found a group of folks who were interested in doing the daily readings and having a little prayer discussion after that. So that was pretty amazing. I guess you would lead those uh, discussions. Well, I, I kind of initiated them, but, okay. you know, it was egalitarian. We all just, you know, had a round of talks. All right. Right, right, right. Were rehabilitation services offered to you? No, everything was in great disarray because of COVID. Um, there were some um, craft classes um, that started up in March, um, but, you know, no, no AA, no NA. If you were going to a drug treatment program, you would have to go back to the FSL, which was much more, much more restricted in another building there. And there just were not a lot of things for the women to do. There were TVs. Martha, I've been reading um, some of your journaling that you were doing while in Danbury. And by the way, uh, if anyone's interested, you can get some of what Martha wrote at the Kings Bay Plowshare 7 website. I recommend it. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about what you what you were writing about uh, while you were jailed during during that time. You wrote from the Danbury prison the following. On the 50th anniversary of the killing of Martin Luther King Jr., April 4th, 2018, we went to Kings Bay to perform a sacramental prophetic act of denuclearization. Our direct nonviolent act of resistance to the nuclear arsenal was grounded in our deeply held religious beliefs that we are in intimate relationship with God and each other. The Kings Bay Plowshare protester did was holy, was saintly, morally correct. Rather than incarceration, what would have been an appropriate reaction by the U.S. justice system 
to what you did, you and, and six others at Kings Bay? Well, in Germany, I mean, they were cutting the fences and the police were seeing them cut the fences and they just um, they released them immediately. There were no consequences. Um, in Kings Bay, uh, you know, they could have given a bar and ban letter, which they have done in the past if uh, people are on the base um, when they didn't want them there. Um, no, what they want to do is make examples. They do not want the population to mess with the military bases. So they were extreme. I mean, they were threatening us with 20 years in prison. And, you know, charges of conspiracy, destruction and depredation of property, serious charges. Um, so the bottom line is they make it sound like we're just dangerous because we're coming near these nuclear warheads. Um, but, you know, the real danger is the existence of this arsenal. Um, but they are very adamant at, at keeping it hidden and keeping it going and really severely punishing um, people who do walk onto these bases. Mm -hmm. And, of course, we've been trying to get testimony on the legality and the morality of these nuclear weapons into the federal court system. That's what the Plushers movement has been trying to do for 40 years, and that has been obstructed. Uh, you know, we had some very good expert witnesses, uh, Daniel Ellsberg being one, um, who were available to come into the courtroom and, and talk about why these weapons are so dangerous. During the trial, one of our jurors asked the question about whether there were nuclear weapons on the base. Wow. And that question went unanswered. The juror in Georgia was asking the question of whether or not there's nuclear armament on the base, didn't know that they were right there next door. Right. It's the, the weapons. The weapons are um, hidden right under our noses throughout the country. Yeah. On May first, twenty twenty-one, you wrote in your jail reflections from Danbury Federal Corrections, "Quote: I am sorry, dear friends and readers. I could go on with my dark cynicism of what I have witnessed in my lifetime." End quote. You have always come across to me as a very sweet person, kind, <laughs> loving, intelligent, thoughtful. Giving giving, um, a good listener, all that stuff. Are, do you feel that you're more cynical now after this experience than you've been? Well, you know, I have ups and downs, like anyone would. Um, e easier days, uh, darker days. Um, you know, I don't want to come out of this a hardened criminal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's um, possible. But... <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the foul language, the harshness, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's there. It's the culture. And I think for me, I've just gained much more clarity of vision about mm. what is actually going on in the world and the ghastly struggle, as Dorothy would call it, um, the seriousness of it. Um, yeah. You know, the way the prisoners are treated, uh, the way the whole system works, it's just become so crystal clear to me how untenable it all is. Mm. And it's been so ongoing, you know, in my lifetime, I've witnessed, you know, the Vietnam War and then mm -hmm. with the Iraq War, they figured out how not to show the blood and mayhem on the TVs. And so we carry on war and 
hiding it from the public. Um, so I, I, maybe I just feel a greater sense of urgency, of course, with climate collapse and the end game of capitalism. So we asked Carmen this question. Mark Colville, a fellow conspirator in the Kings Bay nuclear protest, recently entered a Brooklyn federal prison to complete his sentence for the Kings Bay protest. Any advice you could give Mark? Oh, no. He's much more experienced at this than I am. Ah. Um, He's amazing. He's totally amazing. Um, The work that he's done with the Catholic Worker New Haven House. Um, you know, he's spiritually very strong, very clear. Um, he has four months to serve in a place that is very derelict, um, very inept. Um, his health, you know, certainly will be at risk there Mm -hmm. at his age. Um, you know, he will pray, he will, he will do okay, um. And he had asked to go to Danbury, and instead they put them in that place, which was, you know, further away and worse conditions for his family. Um, no, I'm I'm incredibly grateful for all of the others in the group who have showed such integrity, stamina. When so you expect to be back home July 27th? That's the your date now. Yes, and then my last month will be in home confinement. August 24th is the end of my sentence, the 10 months. Martha, it has been a great honor for us, uh, Becky and I, to know you and Carmen. Yes. And get to speak with you the, you know, this two or three times that we've gotten. And I, I look forward to seeing your beautiful face again and, um, you know, buying you a Thank drink. You. Though I don't, I, don't think, I don't think we bought you a drink. I think you had water or something when you were at Gephardt's, but... Um, <laughs> it's um, it's something yeah. that I, I look forward to getting getting together with you all again. And, all right. And, and you continuing your good work. Is is there any chance you all are going to get on Democracy Now? It seems like this testimony is something that Goodman would want to hear. I did an interview with her brother David Goodman, who has a podcast in Vermont. That was a lot of fun. You can you can uh, look that at Vermont Digger. And Amy has had us on a couple of times. I'm assuming she'll want to do some kind of follow up. Um, but yeah, the media is really critical because what's happening is these outragers are going undetected, and, you know, un, unexplored. Uh, the journalists really need to dig around in what's happening with these halfway houses. Yeah. You know, one thing we, we didn't ask, but I'm getting a sense we should have started with is how, how do you feel? I feel very focused, very centered, but uh, uh, outraged. Mm. Um, you know, the, uh, these are the injustices that I have subjected myself to willingly in order to fully understand uh, what is being done to so many people in the world that is unjust. So I'm grateful to have been able to have this witness. Martha Hennessy, thank you so much for joining us here on Bar Crawl Radio, even though we're not at a bar <laughs> and we're, we're Zooming. We don't see your face and you're calling in by phone, but it's great to hear your voice and so happy that you're on the way out. Yes, yes. Thank you so much. Keep up the good work. Thank you. We you will too. try. Thank we you. We will try. Bye-bye. Wrong, though. All right.
Bye-bye. There's nothing on your forehead that says you've done anything wrong. Well, I can... I am just as guilty as everybody else in terms of uh, my complicity in the social sin and all. But I will not allow myself to be defined by that. That's what resistance is about, okay? We, we don't get defined by that. We get defined by... Um, by who we choose to be in the world, and by cultivating the kind of hope that a place like this and a gathering like this uh, brings, you know.